0: Welcome to Directly Correct, a peeling podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Toby Colshaw.
1: Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast-track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics Generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct.
0: Dang, what, what have you been living it up?
2: Well, I, I was meant to book a holiday, um, but I forgot. I'm not very good <laughs> at stuff.
0: You get around to it someday.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I've got I've got this week off and next week off because next week we're doing a talent intelligence conference in um, uh, Amsterdam. So I wanted to take time off. I didn't want to. Do that within work because you know you you know how work can get, can get you don't you don't want to be focusing on um, other stuff. So um, yeah, I've got next week off for that, but um, yeah, this week I thought we would go away somewhere. Just didn't get around to it at all, and so we've had loads of day trips. So I've got three boys, and so um, it's been lots of days out, on the beach, and then t- today we were rowing boats down a river. So it's been it's been very pleasant. It's been very pleasant.
1: <laughs> well, what's this conference? Uh, do you want to plug it at all?
2: I'm quite happy to. Um, I, I don't really mind though. I'm, I don't really get too pressured with this stuff. It's the, um, a Talent Intelligence conference in Amsterdam. I'm doing with um, so it's the Talent Intelligence Collective. Obviously, it's the TI thing I run. Um, but then we're doing it with Strategists and the Intelligence Group over in the Netherlands. But it's I think the first full-on in-person TI conference ever. We, we did a, a virtual one last year for the Jamboree, so Talent Intelligence Collective Jamboree. But um, I don't think anyone's done a pure play TI conference before. And I can see why. It's, it was the right pain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like, putting together a conference is miserable. And it's like, and what if no one shows up? That's the worst part.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, like, uh, luckily, the, the intelligence group have been handling like all the logistic stuff. I have got to give them huge props. They've done all the hard work. But, but it's, it's hard because TI is still a really niche field. Um, there aren't too, too many people that do it. Uh, and so many people have just had their travel budget smashed. So it's like, well, yeah, doing an in-person one, we probably haven't timed this particularly well, if I'm going to be honest with you. but
0: Well, you pick, a, pick an awesome place like Amsterdam to travel to, though.
2: It is quite a cool place. Like, I, I was really lucky. I used to work at Philips, a um, so, uh, big Dutch tech, tech company. So um, I used to go to Amsterdam quite a lot. And it's, it's amazing how quickly you kind of take it for granted and become blasé with this stuff. But it's a cool city. It
0: is a cool city. <laughs> I mean, sp- speaking of, I was just in Amsterdam probably about a month ago. And, you know, just like cruise around the streets, you know, you look at all the canals and all this sort of stuff. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, a-, a mother and daughter were passing in the opposite direction. I could o- overheard the daughter say, like, Mom, like everywhere looks the same here. It's like, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's actually quite true.
2: It is. But <laughs> it's so easy to get lost in that city because uh, all, all the canals has no distinguishing features. They all, uh, unless you like really know your bridges, and then you find oh, yeah. of bridges or which bridges. But for all intents and purposes, it all looks the same. It's um, it's it's a, it's a great place. It's a great place. You ever been to uh, Amsterdam, Cole?
1: I have not. I've only been to Europe one time, and it was uh, for my high school trip. And I went to London and a few other places, but never been, never been over there. Well, Toby. Do you mind if I introduce you real quick, just for, for the audience's sake? So, Toby Colshaw is the talent intelligence leader at Worldwide Amazon Stores. Uh, like you mentioned, you're previously global head of talent intelligence at an executive recruitment research at Royal Phillips. He's also the founder of the Talent Intelligence Collective, a talent intelligence mentor at Utter. And a co-host of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. So, thanks for joining us today, Toby. Uh, I think we've used that word a few times now. Talent intelligence. What is that? <laughs> and 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 actually, more importantly, can you tell us what it is not? Because I see a lot of people calling themselves talent intelligence nowadays. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> um, so, can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um. It's a hotly debated topic, is the honest answer. Um, so I, uh, I, I got really into it a few years back, and we can talk about that, like my, kind of my past and more if you want later, but um, through that, I, I really wanted to set a parameter of what, what is TI? What do we mean by this stuff? Um, because I felt uh, really strongly that it wasn't what a lot of people were using. It wasn't sourcing intelligence. It wasn't exact research. It was something different. Um, so I started the group off, and we can talk about that if you want later, but we started messing around with definitions. Uh, and when I was doing the uh, benchmarking study a couple of years back, we, we started really looking at the definitions people were using. And um, it was fascinating for me that the definition that vendors were using was different from the definitions that analysts were using, which which was different from the, uh, the definition that TI practitioners were using. And we were all seeing things slightly differently. Broadly, though, it, it's using external labor market data whether it's about skills or jobs or people or companies whatever it may be um, to affect decision-making processes within organizations is the broad definition and that's the definition we kind of got to through the the benchmarking study and that's broadly the definition that i used within the um, the book i used as well i would say there's probably a risk element there as well it's often to de-risk that decision-making process Um, but broadly it's using external labor market data and then wrapping it in with some kind of internal data, wrapping it with some kind of analytics or or Intel science type element um, to to affect decision-making processes.
0: I mean, let's dig a little bit deeper in there, Toby. So you say you, how do do those two things like co-mingle? So you use external labor market data as a uh, comparison base to?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd say this will probably answer a question we'll discuss later as well, which is how does it differ And Colin, you mentioned how does it differ from, from other things? And, um, I'd say that that's the, one of the core bits is how does it differ for say people analytics? And I'd say traditionally people analytics has got a very structured uh, defined data set and data criteria that you can control um, and you're coming very much from a, uh, usually a heavy technical background with a, an eye to the external but it's, the external is there to help set the context, but it's not really the main focus of the function. TI is the, the inverse, it's like, it's like the yin and the yang. Traditionally, people aren't coming from a hardcore data background. Um, we're using the vendor landscape more for that, that hardcore heavy lifting data analytics um, forecasting type piece, and we're, we're more that conduit to the business and that data translator. So it's kind of the yin and the yang. Um, I'd say one thing that's that's really coming through in the last couple of years is how many more teams are standing up more technical capabilities within TI teams. Mm-hmm. But also how many more people analytics, HR analytics teams, strategic workforce planning teams are starting to go, well, actually, we need to understand this context a little bit more to understand what we've got here. And, and it is really, it's messy. It really is messy because you, you can end up with some really structured take a job taxonomy really structured data internally you know what your software engineer one two, or three looks like you know what your principal looks like you know what it all means that doesn't mean anything to the rest of the world it doesn't mean anything could align it doesn't mean that any of the national taxonomies are going to align even remotely with what you've got so a lot of the, the initial stages with ti is to really go well this is what we've got and this is what they've got how, how do they actually play together how do they align because quite often they don't an example you know customer service assistant we, we had a job at Phillips, customer service. Every other customer service role you generally are going to look at will be your first line support for a call center. You know, you've bought tickets to the Super Bowl and you can't get through, you're phoning f- up your customer service, customer support. Customer service for us was first line engineering support to help fix an MRI machine. Now, that's an entirely different proposition to, to what most customer service roles were and so if you if you stayed at the surface level of like job taxonomy all of your benchmarking data is going to be completely wrong any kind of data to look at total addressable market if you're looking to, to launch a new, new site for example to yeah. be completely wrong so a lot of it initially is really that unpicking of what do we actually mean by this what are you actually talking about here because quite often we'll Within our professional lives, use shorthand of, you know, I need a software engineer or I need a finance controller or whatever it is. You need use a shorthand of a job title or, or whatever it may be. And actually, you, we need to dig into that a lot more because it, it doesn't it doesn't translate to the external world at all.
0: And uh, I know that you two actually just wrote a article together.
1: Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, back in March. We wrote an article. Oh, March. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a little while, um, called Talent Intelligence as Competitive Intelligence. And I I thought this was kind of an interesting angle. And I'll um, I'll stop sharing real quick because it's kind of bugging me. (laughs) But but I think, Toby, and I would be curious to get your perspective on this because the big question I have, so I understand merging the external data with the internal data. And I, I think that there's a lot, a lot of use cases to do that effectively. One of which we dug into about competitive intelligence, but why is that useful? Why is that different? Why is that useful? How does it help organizations? Obviously we had some examples in the article, but I'd, I'd love to just get your perspective in general.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I'd say I'd say there's a couple of different angles. The broader piece around TI, and I'm not going to be a politician and dodge the question, I will loop back, but it's going to sound like a weird answer at first. The vast majority of TI is location feasibility. If you talk to most talent intelligence teams, and I I run this benchmarking survey, we just run it again for this year, you're looking at like 60, 70% of all work going through talent intelligence teams is location feasibility, full stop. The vast majority is around it. Now, within that, you're going to have lots of different elements. You can have compensation benchmarking. You're going to have talent flow analytics. You're going to have total addressable market. And you're going to have comp- competitive intelligence. Um, but the vast majority is around that location decision. Where competitive intelligence is strong, you can use it in a number of different angles. You can use it on a, what I'd say is a, a fairly safe plane. You, you know, digging into competitors to understand make the, the, their organizational structure. Are, are they loaded top heavy? Do they have a very strong um, credit control function versus the, the rest of the industry? In and I We had an organization where uh, we were doing some digging into it in a previous company um, for an m activity. And um, we could see that the, the company had a really strange structure compared to all of our peer group companies we were, we were digging into. And um, they, they essentially had a very large credit control team compared to everyone else. It was magnitude higher. And when we went back to the strategy team, the MA team, we were saying, look, this is just weird. To us, we're no experts in this bit, but it looks like they're really good at selling the product. Everyone great. They really want the product, but no one's paying for it. No one wants to pay for what they're they're, they're selling. And it was true. When we were doing the due diligence, we were looking at the cash flows. They didn't have any money. They they just couldn't get the cash flow going through. And and that's where I'd say competitive intelligence really comes in. It's where you're doing the stuff... That you shouldn't really necessarily be doing as a traditional HR function, and I know we want to uh, talk about weaponizing uh, TA later on, but um, it's when you're using the labour the market data in a different way. So looking at job adverts to see how competitors pivoting their skill sets, how are they pivoting their locations, how are they investing in their um, new, new markets or new, new R&D spend, for example. And we, we've seen that in companies as well, where we, we could see companies pivoting and launching whole new areas, whole new business lines, whole new markets. And they hadn't told the the, the broader market about it. it. hadn't been announced to Wall Street. But the companies I was at, we could go to our, our leadership and say, actually, we can see these companies are pivoting. We need to be aware of this because it's going to hit our market share, or it's going to hurt, hurt our product line, or whatever it may be.
1: No, I love that. And and you literally, I know we alluded to it a second ago, but I want to make sure we link to it in the show notes because you literally wrote a book called Talent Intelligence, <laughs> and it goes through a lot of these examples of very tangible, very tactical ways that talent intelligence can be used beyond just, you know, location strategy, which I think all of us are pretty familiar with. Or if if you're familiar with the space, you're pretty familiar with that. I I did want to kind of pivot, though. You lead this group called Talent Intelligence Collective, Mm -hmm. which as a person who's tried to kick off groups before and has tried to kick off conferences before, too, you are a glutton for punishment, first of all. (laughs) knowing that you're doing this, but tell us a little bit about that group. I've kind of crashed your party a few times. I love what you all are doing. Like tell us about this group and, and how can people get involved if they're interested?
2: Yeah, um, I agree. It, it is a bit of glutton punishment at times, and um, you definitely go see that the, the energies ebb and flow as it as it goes. And the, the, with all these things, there's going to be kind of a, a pivot point, and economies of scale, and eventually it will self-fulfill. But um, yeah, the, the TIC was essentially my way of of dodging having to to actually arrange regular calls. Uh, ironically, I ended up arranging regular calls from it. But um, it started off where I was just having a, when I was forming the team at Phillips, I, I wanted to benchmark. I, I, this was newly created TI team. I wanted to know what what could look like in this space. How can I, what's, who are the best people doing this stuff? And so I reached out to a few people and I couldn't really find many, many teams doing it, but I found a few people that were doing this sort of work from people analytics teams or from HR analytics teams. And um, so I, I started having a, a regular uh, monthly call and then, that started getting me a bit ropey so we shifted that to a quarterly call and i realized i was really not the person to be setting the agenda on this stuff and keeping everyone already tight ship. and i was like this this isn't working let's let's create a, a facebook group so we can all just drop in there and chat things asynchronously and, and we can just run a bit more fluidly um and so i did that and created the the group and um we called it the talent intel collective And um, we just kept kept running off the back of that it's really evolved it really has and, and you know i I'm very grateful to, to everyone in the, the community because it's it's grown through the individuals. You know, we I've, we do a couple of different monthly calls, we do virtual meetups, we do various different things. Um, but a lot of it is through the individuals. It's the individuals giving their time, it's the individuals giving their, their, their wisdom and their insight, because a lot of this is new. The vast majority of people standing up, these talent intel teams, uh, are sub-five people teams, and they've all, a vast majority have been created in the last five years in actual fact a huge majority have been created in the last two years and so they they, there aren't people to really benchmark this stuff off and and that's where also the book came from was you know i'd have lots of calls with people just to give them ideas around how they could set these teams up what it could look like and invariably at the end of it every single time it was like that's been really great what can i read about this and at the time, there was a couple of articles. We'd done a white paper when I was at Philips. Um, Malika Poles did it. Um, but we didn't, there wasn't really a kind of a chunky, substantive piece of, body of work to say, here you go. Read this. This will help guide you. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I did with the book, was just to give people an idea of, like, this is the current state of play. I'm not saying it's the panacea. It's not the answer for everything. But that was where I saw the world going at that time. Um, and yeah, luckily it seems to be landing pretty well, and people are pretty happy with it.
0: And uh, you can also stop by the Talent Intelligence Collective and get a sticker or mug, right? Support the group, right? <laughs> you can. I popped you know, in there yesterday. I saw your blog. It's got all sorts of great info in there.
2: I should have. I, sh- I should have been wearing my swag today, shouldn't I? Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, we we you need some new swag too. Let me send you a little button or so.
2: Well, you know, honestly, I'm, I, I'm, I'm. Not very good at doing things the proper way, generally. I, I look at kind of easy lift solutions that I can use wrongly to, to do what I need. So I needed a website to kind of host some of this stuff and to, to put, if we wanted to put templates down, if we wanted to, to put reports out there, etc., I wanted a nice, easy way we could have it as like a central hub where people can just grab all this stuff. Um, and the Google Sheets thing wasn't really working, so I yeah. thought, well, what's an easy solution? And I saw Shopify, but obviously to create that, you need some kind of producty type piece as well. So um, yeah, I ended up creating a bit of swag there. So, some people have been very generous and jumped into it and, and grabbed a load of swag, which is very... It makes me chuckle. It's, it's amazing. Um, some have <laughs> how, got, like,
0: how many How many bomber jackets have you
2: sold yet? <laughs> not man i think there's only one bomber jacket <laughs> but the bits that made me chuckle is because i didn't you know i'm no retailer i don't know what i'm doing with that stuff at all so i hadn't accounted for like local taxes or any of that sort oh, of stuff yeah. quite a lot of it people were buying it ringing it up it was great it looked like a really healthy you know amount they're spending to support the group but it would cost me money because I, I hadn't accounted for the taxes so i ended up spending out more than, than they spent on the product so it went a bit horribly awry but um yeah, it's it works as a hub. Like the reality is, like the, the, the product. If you want to buy it, it's great support, but um, it works as a hub. Like to store templates, to to have the kind of the blogging bit going on there. Um, it does work as a, a pretty decent hub solution, to be honest.
0: And like I said, uh, everyone should stop by there and like, check it out. Cause there's lots of great information on there. Uh, but like, let's circle back to your book. Like you say you don't do things the normal way and you, you kind of laid out why you wrote the book, but how did you write the book? Like right now I'm writing a book chapter and it's the worst fucking thing on earth. And I know, uh, Cole was going to write a book, but like, I don't know if it's still going or
1: not. Nah. <laughs> no, no, uh, that, that thing, uh, Materialized and unmaterialized like ten times. Yeah. And I finally just gave up on it.
2: Uh, I my, I tip my hat to you guys because trying it, it's hard. It's br- it's really brutal. So I, I I started off by I mentioned earlier that people were asking me like where's the body of work we can read. So I thought all right, I'll start putting some ideas down. And initially, I was just going to launch it as a series of like LinkedIn articles or blog posts yeah. or whatever. Just going to have a series of articles. And then um, somebody introduced me to their publishing editor. And the publishing editor, editor and I had a chat. And I wasn't really at first taking it too seriously in terms of writing the book. I was like, all right, I'll have a chat. Let's see where it goes. And then we, we had the conversation and it, and, it, and it went well. And you kind of go through the whole pu- publishing editing process of of whether they sign off on the book and everything else. Um, uh, honestly, for the first six, seven months, six months, I'd written about uh, about 15,000 words. And it got to the end uh, end of the year. Um, so December prior and, uh, the book was due in the March and I was like, all right, I'll write it over Christmas I'll or quite over the Christmas period. It'd be lovely sitting down with a <laughs> mince pie, or whatever. Yeah. Clearly none of that B- happened. Big
0: plans. Yeah. Didn't happen
2: at all. Um, so it got into the new year and suddenly I was like, I've got a month left and I need to deliver this thing. And they were like, you, you, you've got to deliver this. Um, so it starts suddenly hit home and it was a lot of late nights. We extended the deadline, uh, once. And then I was like, right, done. There's your 50,000 words, it's all done. They're like, that's great, but you're meant to do 60,000 words. I was like, cracking, better find another 10,000 words. (laughs) So then I had to do the final 10,000 in in, I think it was about two weeks. I I, I wouldn't say the the book I've done, I, I wouldn't say it's a hard book to write because it's fairly structured, you know, it's, it's discrete units, discrete chapters, you know, you do it, whether you're looking at data security or data architecture or standing up a team or the future of TI, it's fairly discrete units that you can chunk into quite nicely. So I think anyone could do it, but it is, it is a lot of work. There's no, and even once you finish, you think, all right, done, delivered, there you go. Then it goes through all the editing and then you've got to do the redrafts and then the editing, and then the redrafts, and it oh takes God. a lot of time. Um, but it's, I, I, it was a great experience. It really was
0: like dissertations right
2: and
1: you just you think you're done like oh hell no you're not done that's
2: <laughs> exactly that exactly
1: that well so toby i've got one really big question in this space it has been bugging me about talent intelligence and we we kind of addressed it at one of the orgnostic sessions we had for through the lounge on talent intelligence a few weeks ago the one with uh aj herman and uh travis windling and ben Zweig. Right. And I think you were there in attendance where I brought up this concept. If you hear a lot about skills-based organizations now and skills taxonomies. And so I kind of cleverly brought one person from each background. One person who was advocating for a skills-based organization. One for task-based looks at talent intelligence. And then another based on role-based looks at talent intelligence. Mm -hmm. Where do you come down on this debate because i hear about skills relentlessly i hear about it all the time yeah. what, what what's your model how do you look at this what, what is t- are all three of those even talent intelligence can, tell us about it
2: yeah so all, all of that can comfortably fall into ti and, and that's the beauty and the danger of ti because it, it can definitely end up being super broad and you can end up with TI teams on the face of it look exactly the same. You dig into their work, totally different. Um, but th- I could go off on a huge tangent there, so I won't. Um, I, I think there's a, a lot of focus on the skills-based hiring and, and skills-based uh, organizational structures, et cetera, at the moment. I, I don't think it's feasible. I just don't. And the reason being is I don't think most companies have a really good handle on what skills they have. Um, even if you've got a really good learning management system, if you're capturing all that information, if you've got your talent cards that people fill in once a year, you're still missing probably seventy percent of the, the on-the-job learning that people do, and the skills development they're doing through that whole yearly period, unless they're permanently like updating their, their talent cards or permanently updating the uh, LMS, which I don't think most people are. Um, you could then kind of have more intelligent systems and start doing inferred skills and, and starting to look at okay, what do other people within that have? Okay, it's so likely that person has it. Uh, I just, I just don't think we're we're geared up for that. Um you know there are obviously a lot of the vendors are pushing the skills based hiring. It's often the vendors that have great skills taxonomies and great platforms that will give you <laughs> shot of coincidence information it's a very strange coincidence. I think for me it's the it's the downstream impact of it all though like if, if i if I hire Scotty for your skill set, not against a job family, not against a job framework, but your skills, well I now need a whole comp structure to to marry against skills taxonomies, not job frameworks. So now that's got to be redone. Yeah. And then how do we manage that? So suddenly the traditional hierarchy of work and the hierarchy of an organization doesn't really necessarily work out if you're managing to skills and to project outcomes rather than for job families. So I, I think there's a whole load of downstream impact of, of this skills-based hiring that people haven't really necessarily thought through. What it really I think will come down to is what I think its heart it's meant to be is, all right, let's still probably hire against jobs but let's just broaden skills. Let's broaden what we're looking for and not pigeonhole people into, you're only in this job family, if you've got this skill set. you can have some parallel skills that that sit across. And I I think that's probably where it will end up is actually we're just broadening out of skill bases rather than um, an actual skills-based hiring.
0: But uh, those skills are a real deal. So like, uh, imagine you're hiring an IO psychologist, right? fantastic you, you do that if you want someone that knows like how to code that's a little more rarefied if you want someone that knows say nlp or ml that's even more rarefied i, mm-hmm. I imagine you you gotta be you you expect to be paid for this sort of rarefied skill set right yeah i completely
1: agree
2: completely agree. Well, i
1: think um and let me jump in here i think I think everyone understands that perspective, Scott, and it seems really like a valid perspective. I think where the challenge comes in is the folks that are pushing, we're just gonna get rid of the concept of jobs. And now all you are, you're not a person working in a job, you are just a collection of skills. And that's gonna manifest itself in a skills-based organization. And we're gonna be able to do things very fluidly and, and that's where I, you kind of lose me is like, okay, well, I, I think we're still going to have jobs in the future. I, I don't think we're all going to be 1099 employees who like act like Uber drivers of machine learning, <laughs> you know. Well,
0: it takes like an ar- incredible amount of architecture on the front exactly. end.
2: And, and it would be amazing. Like, I, I remember having conversations with the head of people, I Phillips, when I was there way back. And, and we were talking about how could we have, uh, it, it was when the gig economy was like the really hot topic of everyone. Uh, And I was like, how can we build gig economy, flexibility and uh, agility and and, and freedom within an enterprise organization? And and we were talking about kind of that whole, how would that work? And I think it was very similar, you know, conceptually in my brain. If you're being hired against the skill, great, coming in, you need to essentially sell your services internally within organizations. And uh, to, to get the work coming in, because if you're not in a specific job, you might not have a structured um, uh, workload coming in. You need to go out and sell your services and sell your skills. I think it really does, does call cool for an entire shakeup of the whole HRIS landscape to, to make that work properly. Uh,
0: Toby, just just very quickly, uh, you're based in the UK, correct? Yeah. Like, what are the differences that you see uh, working in the UK for, say, an American-centric company?
2: Oh, good question.
0: Um, is, is, is there like an inhibiting factor? Is there a uh, I think there's benefit to it.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's from our from kind of skills. Is they allowed for more radical
1: beard game on. You yeah. know, like, I feel like you're just <laughs> rocking it.
2: <laughs> do you know, I, 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 This has been a relatively recent growth, but yes. <laughs> um, I, do you know what? I, I think there's definitely. Yeah, definitely some 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 benefits you know there, there are some great skill sets access to europe etc cetera, etc cetera. um i think that there's some real challenges as well that comes with it and, and the one of my my favorite books is the culture map um which talks around uh cultural norms and and how different cultures mm-hmm. uh, work within an organizational structure and an organizational setting and i think there's that definitely you definitely see that w- within the the, the british employees within US companies because of the communication style, you know, US is traditionally much, much more direct. The British, we like to beat around the bush, we like to go around in circles. So you, you definitely see some communication styles, communication challenges, uh, etc. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think more generally, I, I think, you know, the UK where we have traditionally some pretty solid talent bases, we've got some good good hubs, we've got some some good infrastructure and stuff. So it's, it's a good place to land. It's probably not as appealing post Brexit. is the reality mm. of it. You, you're suddenly going, well, actually, I can go go into, you know, Germany or or, or France, etc., as well. So um, it's probably not quite as appealing. But um, yeah, we're still seeing a lot of investment coming in. I,
0: I sprung that on you. I, I was curious.
2: No, it's uh, I I'm very lazy fair with this thing. Spring anything. I don't mind.
0: <laughs> How long is that beard gonna get then? And we're gonna spring anything. Yeah.
2: I, I'm, I'm still debating whether I'm going to go kind of Sons of Anarchy or whether I am actually <laughs> some kind of pirate. I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure. A
0: little mustache wax,
2: you know. It, a... <laughs> Do you know it all started because I, I had I had a beard for years. And uh, so my wife turned around to me one day and went, you realize you keep it so short, people just think you haven't shaved for a day. Uh, and then I started growing out. I had somebody that I'd, I'd genuinely worked with for about seven years turned around to me and went, oh, you've grown a beard. How long have you had a beard for? And I was like, the entire time we've known each other, seven years. (laughs) They had no idea I'd even been bothering to try and grow a beard for that period.
1: You could make an argument they had beard blindness. Have you ever heard of this term face blindness, like people who meet other people but can't recognize them? Uh, Prosopagnosia. Um, Yes, yes. Well done. Way to go,
2: Scott. That's a great pub quiz knowledge there, isn't it? Just pull that lot.
0: <laughs> full of it. Full of it. Or, or the people that have like phantom limb syndrome, like they lost their mm-hmm. arm and still think it's there.
2: I wonder if I'm going to have phantom beard syndrome when I cut this off eventually. I'll, I'll be stroking the beard that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah.
0: I, I, I think I have uh, uh, the inability to remember people's names. That, that's, that's my face blindness, name blindness. Yeah.
1: My thing with the, the beard is, you know, if you cut the beard or if I cut my beard, it's like phantom beard. Real double chin, you know, oh. uh, you know, trying to trying to mask that, that big guy. Hiding a lot
2: under here. Hiding a lot. Of.
1: It's adaptive. Helps you out. Well,
0: uh, you two want to do a little uh, Confusion Matrix? Let's do it. Do it.
1: The Confusion
0: Matrix. All right, Toby. We're going to do a Pick Your Poison, all right? So you get, we give you two options. You get to pick whichever one you want, and we'll roll with it. Let's do it. Okay one the most embarrassing element in your music library or two the weirdest skill you've learned on the job
2: oh i'll get, I'll get the, the the worst music um I, I'll, I'll give you two as a little treat my, my first ever concert was a banana rama concert <laughs> which i don't even know whether how big banana rama were across the pond but um yeah banana rama concert and i fell asleep during it i fell asleep before they even got on there I was in the stands with my dad and my my sisters were down in the like, the, the what would have been a pit in any other based banana ramas. So it's, it's, it's a pit. But yeah, they were down there. I fell asleep before they came in. Um, the probably uh, my first single I ever bought was Crocodile Shoes by Jimmy Nail. Um, Crocodile was, Shoes. Okay. Crocodile Shoes, but it's a terrible song. Uh, he was basically uh, an actor from the. Uh, North of England, um, and yeah, he did a song called "Crocodile Shoes," and it's pretty terrible. But I, I have quite an eclectic taste of music. And I'm quite open to terrible, terrible songs. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes quite, you need it. So it, it. It's comforting, right? It's true. It's true. And I, you know, I, I particularly doing the sort of work we do. I, you know, when when I'm writing papers, when I'm doing research, I have to have music on. I can't. I can't sit in silence. I. So I, I have different types of genre that i will hit for like if i'm writing a paper versus doing research for a paper versus doing different bits i'll have different genres that i hit for different things so
0: like what, what like we're doing a lit review what what are we listening to
2: uh i'd probably do do something pretty chilled so i'd probably do like uh whiskey blues or something like that put some kind of whiskey blues kind compilation on youtube all
0: right all right we're doing some uh um hardcore conclusion writing what are we doing
2: but writing as you as you know it's a big thing um <laughs> I, I go for some some pretty aggressive metal not high progressive but stuff like you know slipknot or something like that i'll, I'll get get in there and, and get that blasting in the background i need do some dogs. yeah exactly exactly i think it's the the beats per minute i think that's what triggers mm. me when i need to like really focus on i need, need some higher beats per minute um versus yeah when, it, when it's a bit more chilled what
1: was your first uh album cole the like first one i bought yeah um i honestly don't remember but i'm just gonna say (laughs) in (laughs) sync just to to be funny because it was probably one of my first 10 i bought and uh i remember that one being pretty early that's
0: that's uh guilty pleasure music right dance in the mirror
1: when you're a kid it's not even a guilty pleasure it's just like this is good music it's a pleasure (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what about you uh, like most embarrassing
0: song in my library, uh, probably like Lynn steal my sunshine or Bar- Barbie girl. That's in there. Oh yeah. And boy, it was, it's been like about four years, but, uh, I got called a boomer cause I still have an MP3 collection. Yeah. <laughs> You're not a boomer. I mean, I feel I,
1: like those are transferable.
0: Yeah, exactly. That That was my argument too, but you know, I'm not streaming, you know, but I spent too much time on LimeWire and Napster to give it up. Right
1: no he did not federal government
0: he was <laughs> I think they're from the both, they were both out of business by 20 years i think <laughs> statute of limitations wink wink are done yeah.
2: uh, whoever called you a boomer though needs to look into the demographic splits you know this is not <laughs> my, i i mentioned earlier, i've got three boys my, my oldest will often call me a boomer and it's like hey kids. Buddy, i don't mind you ripping into me but let's just get these demographic cuts accurate like just get, know yeah. what you're
1: called. you're a few generations off there sir
0: have you seen the uh like tiktok trends of like i don't know gen z saying like well life in the late 1900s was like this it's like that's amazing
1: that's just math (laughs) (laughs) so you
0: shut up you little kid
1: well you ready to do some nerdery yeah let's do it the nerdery where do you want to start i want to start with a little kudos to you my friend scotchua we got a iop article so for the non-initiated uh scott and one of our previous guests liz conjure got a submission uh, accepted in the industrial organizational psychology uh or it's a commentary it's a commentary wanna...
0: like yeah it's not oversell it it's a, a full article i'm still proud of you <laughs> <laughs> but the full article uh i can't remember the actual name of it it doesn't
1: matter. Well, it's uh, bringing polycultural organizations to life, a network analytic strategy.
0: Yeah, the the actual focal article dealt with this idea of polycultural organizations, which essentially uh, seeks to develop connections across different employee segments, with the idea being that as opposed to, say, multiculturalism, which is, you know, kind of a melding of culture. It's kind of like, this is in a nutshell. It gets a little more sophisticated than this. But, you know, like a melding of culture. Polycultural says, like, you know, different elements of the culture are adaptive. Let's, you know, lean on each other, develop connections across these different groups, and, you know, kind of learn from each other, this sort of thing. Fantastic. But they didn't really provide methods to do it. I saw this. I do a bunch of network analytics. I got several different strategies that organizations can use to, you know, increase this. I didn't want to get too much into the diversity aspect of this, but rather bringing together different employee segments where we can learn from each other. So like Toby, you're in the UK. I want to know more about this. You're a different part of uh, the company than me. Cold brings different perspective, this sort of stuff. So um, yeah, I, I put together, it's like eight different strategies that organizations can use to uh, help uh, engender connections across different folks.
1: Well, can I ask you a question about it? Um, just back, this is kind of a words and terms question of, you mentioned multicultural versus polycultural mm-hmm. and ona seems like it's uniquely suited to analyze polycultural circumstances due to the methodological limitation that you mentioned from the focal article um how how is it different than how you would analyze multicultural work and maybe i'm just not understanding the differences there
0: no once again it gets a little nuanced. so uh way they talk about it like multiculturalism is like a blending of cultures you know kind of bringing together different elements
1: this in a nutshell so it's like, a, like a suicide of sodas so you go to the soda yeah store, you get every soda and that's multiculturalism yeah
0: you know how like, like multiculturalism fairs and like you go and like get a little sampler from each little group you know kind of like blend them all together in your belly if you're getting yeah, this sort of thing. But polyculturalism is like different segments, and how to build connections across those segments. Okay,
2: Just keeping them as discrete units. And yeah, the, the benefits of that, but building those bridges between.
0: And and from a network analytic perspective, there are several different elements that uh, relate directly to this, such as community detections. So, a group of individuals that uh, perhaps they have different genders, different. Uh, ethnicities, different work units, this sort of stuff, but they all collaborate together. They all essentially share knowledge together. So they're going to have a cohesive set, a knowledge base, despite their individual differences. But how can you build bridges across different communities to share those knowledge bases? That's where like the real magic starts happening. So, I mean, we, we talk about these fracture lines, which are kind of artificial between, say, uh, ethnic groups. But if they're in the same group, they essentially have the same knowledge set. So, I mean, like talking in these terms, it, it has value in certain mm, analog functions, but in reality, you want to share knowledge between these groups, and that's what this is all about.
2: Would, would the same strategies work? Obviously that between, uh, it's polycultural, but but would it also work between polyfunctional? So, with, as you sat talking then, I was yeah. thinking, yeah. You know, we used to do, do a lot of work combining talent intelligence with market intelligence, with IP litigation, to bring these different elements together to say, okay, what are our, coming back to competitive intelligence, what, what are our competitors doing and trying to see a holistic picture from everyone? But it, it feels like it would be similar strategies.
0: It, it, exactly, exactly. Once again, like I want to stay away from the DEI aspect for this exact reason. Because, you know, uh, there's a thing in network analysis called modularity, essentially how the network breaks up into different functions. And it's exceptionally useful because there's greater similarity of people inside those different modules than Mm -hmm. outside. So uh, from like, oh, man, I could go off kind of crazy. There's a thing called like a small world uh, network. So this is essentially like (laughs) dense interconnected groups, which you have different little communities, but short path links between them. So little bridges across them. So you can reach. Essentially, anyone in the network in three or four steps, and that's what you really want to do. Really want to do. You want like isolated groups. You uh, you don't want like big sort of diffuse groups either. You want like these like kind of dense groups that work together closely and can share knowledge across different segments.
1: Well, I'm personally pro isolated groups and anti collaboration, so I am against your research, sir. <laughs> Uh,
0: and luckily, it's not really my research; it's just different strategies uh, that people can use. So, like it, it, to Toby's point, like you can use this in sort of any application, really, if you want to like develop uh, connections across people.
2: Well, that's really cool. That's super interesting.
1: It is. It really is. Well, let's let's go on to our next one, which I'm really curious to see what you guys think about the prevalence of what we're about to share. Um, but I think you came across this, Scott, this Twitter post, oh, or ex, oh. ex post on the, this guy. Santiago says, I fired somebody cheating. He was working two jobs and he gives this whole detailed story uh, about this person on his team who wasn't doing a really good job. Come to find out that he was actually working two jobs at the same time he had never quit his previous job and since he was remote he was working now and they came up with this term <laughs> overemployed which I guess is like a whole trend on the internet um, and Scott I think you had some perspective here too do you want to kind of keep going with it oh well I mean perspective like well a a Santiago is a
0: wonderful. Twitter follow. He he's great. If you're if you're not following him, follow him because he like writes really, really compelling sort of things. uh it's <laughs> amazing, right? Someone just like the the fucking balls. The balls to just like, yeah, I'm gonna who knows if he, he says two. He could have eight jobs. You know, it takes a while to be found out and essentially let go. So I mean, like someone could be raking in eight, ten paychecks. Who knows?
1: Well, so this is the question. I actually have two questions about this, right? Um, One is, how prevalent do we think this actually is for remote-based workers? And then the second is, other than people fessing up on Reddit or something like that, how would you find out that this is happening without doing creepy, creepy stuff to monitor your employees? I mean,
0: it, it it feels apocryphal. Right, like no one would actually do this.
1: No, they're doing it.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's have there been state cases for sure. Will people do it for sure? Um, I don't think it's anywhere near as prevalent as as people are making out. And, and you know, there's, there's arguments. The whole push to our, return to office. One of the triggers for that was this this movement of, of um, being overemployed. I'm just not. I'm not convinced. And and. The bit, the bit I, I when I was reading Santiago's peaceness, nothing regards to Santiago. But it, it, when I was reading it, I thought, well, you're not firing him, for the, the person for being overemployed. You're firing them because they weren't meeting the performance. Yeah. Team. And and for me, that's the fundamental question. Do I care if any of my employees in life have two, three, five, ten jobs? No. I care about what they're producing. So if they can have efficiency gains and can produce a week's worth of work in a day because they're hyper-efficient and they've built automation into their workflow, et cetera, et cetera, why should I penalize them for that? Now, uh, equally, I think it's a lot easier in certain countries than others. The UK, it would be really hard to do this because you've got P-I-E-Y-E, if you're employed by a company, they can see if you're double-employed. double, double employed. It would be picked up super, super fast, unless you're a self-employed and you're going in on a, a contract, it would be really super fast picked up. So um, I, I don't think it's as big of an issue as as people think. You mentioned
1: the acronym P-Y-E-E, what is that?
2: Uh, P A Y E, which is pay as you earn. So it's essentially, oh. mm. a, as you, as you uh, are paid from your employer, the government will automatically tax you at source. So so you, we don't do annual tax returns in the same way. It's just every single pay, pay slip you're taxed immediately. Yeah. So if you were working two jobs, the government would immediately see that and you'd have a different tax code. And so it would immediately get picked up what your, you're working multi-jobs.
1: That is a clever way. I don't know if it works this way in the US, but uh, a clever way to suss this out if you really were like trying to dig into it would be to go to the IRS. You know, could you get, could you get those records though? I mean, as an employer, I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> I've never tried to do this, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that's a method of going about doing it. I, like going back to the prevalence of this, like it, this is a specialized
0: person. Like this is the tail end of distribution of someone that would actually do it. I know far more people that have a 40 hour a week job and only work 20 hours a week and the rest of the time they sit there on their ass playing video games, just don't have the sort of gumption to take up, a third
1: job or something like that. It would be funny or fun if you were at a cocktail party to kind of brag about this. Like if you were doing it, <laughs> like I've got three jobs.
2: <laughs> I, I can take that level of admin. If I'm going to be honest, you know, the amount of admin in one job is enough. Oh yeah. I can imagine the, the admin resources needed for three jobs. Um, no, it's not, not one for me.
0: Well, is this like an offshoot of like, say the gig economy? Like this seems to be like, you know,
1: to your point, like. I think this is the logical conclusion of Mm. the gig economy. Like this was almost like if we, I mean, I guess I would be curious about your perspective about this too, but I, I saw the gig revolution as kind of a failed revolution. Like, it, there was a point in time where everybody's saying, like, everybody's going to be a gig worker, yeah. and that we're seeing this exponential curve and rise in this type of workforce. And it's like, eh, it plateaued pretty quickly in terms of the types of gig jobs versus non gig jobs that are going on out there. um But if it were to really go up that exponential trend like they projected it to a few years ago, this would have been the conclusion of what it looked like, I feel like.
2: Yeah. It's it, it, like mentally, I don't see it as any different as. Uh, an uber driver doing a lift and delivering a pizza at the same time yeah it, it's it's using your, your your efficiencies um and that's but,
1: how uber eats was formed <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I agree
2: and... I, I i think it all comes down to me though for fundamentally as to what are we employing people for are we employing them for time or are we employing them to produce mm-hmm. uh, if you're employing people for time then, then, sure. That's a, this over overemployment is a real problem, and you've got to work out your timings. But if you're working them to produce, then it should be a productivity piece. Either you, as a manager, don't have a good hand on what they can produce in a given period of time, or, or just accept that, yeah, if they're producing what I want from them, great. It, it shouldn't be an issue.
1: Absolutely. Well, the manager probably doesn't have a good handle on it, first of all. Um, but second of all, I actually really do agree with you on one point that you made, Toby, about. I think a lot of folks use this type of thing as as an example to try to push the return to office. Mm. And it's a bad example for that. Like, it's not a pervasive problem, right? Or at least statistically speaking, it's not. So what do you, what do you, what do you mean? Like, just like prevent people from
0: doing this or just like keep them under the watchful eye of
2: watchful supervisors? Eye. Yeah. But then the flip side, mo- most companies going back to the office aren't going back for five days. So... If you were over-employed, for argument's sake, you just go into one office for two and a half days and the other office for two and a half days. Like, Brilliant. <laughs> I love that. We can keep it going. It's not dead yet.
0: You need to, you need to find two offices that are next to each other.
2: You just kind of yeah. see everybody. Because it's within the same city, you're going to be fine. It's going to be no, no problem at all.
0: I mean, like, like, delivering for Uber Eats is one thing, but, like, the cognitive load of, like, just trying to keep everyone's name straight and, like, who the players are at two knowledge jobs would be, like,
2: They might be doing the same you could just go get an uber together to to the other (laughs) office oh oh, yeah third option
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right i'm I'm gonna move us on to our last uh nerdery topic um and i I had sent this to you a while back toby um (laughs) dr john sullivan is somebody we've mentioned a few times on the podcast and uh, this is a new one of his a relatively new one of his articles called using weaponized recruiting tools to achieve talent domination by shifting to an aggressive competitor strategy mm-hmm. and in the article he talks about uh, some of these concepts like hire to hurt a direct raid on a competitor team lift outs, recruiting uh, recruit industry icons for attraction and branding purposefully hurt your competitors recruiting capabilities and I could go on. Um, I guess, like, we've cited John Sullivan a few times on here, I'm noticing a trend in his articles are getting a little bit more radical every article he writes, in terms of like, I don't know, controversial, or just maybe I'll just even call it mean, they're just mean spirited. Um, I guess, I'm really curious to talk to you, Toby, about since you've been in this industry for a while, you've been on kind of the intelligence side, not just the sourcing side. Do you think it's, I I guess a two part question, do you think it's worth using these weaponized recruiting tactics? And do you think that organizations who do employ them actually do get ahead in the long run? Or is this end up hurting them more in the long run?
2: So to carry, I, I don't think many are doing a lot of this stuff. They might do it in isolated pockets, it's, it, most mm. aren't. It, it's a natural conclusion. If you assume that there's a the war for talent, then this is a natural conclusion. Yeah, let's so, go scorched earth if we're at war, right? For sure that you can do this stuff. You know, I, I made recommendations, and naturally, it was this sort of work that got me into talent intelligence. You know, when I, I was in a defense firm many years ago, and uh, there was a cybersecurity person we were trying to, trying to hire, um, and it was a specific accreditation for the UK government, and you could only get this accreditation if you employed someone with that accreditation, and then they get the whole team accredited, but you couldn't just send a team away. And then we kept looking for this person, and, and there were there were only 13 of them in the whole country that did this stuff. And uh, I remember going through, and they weren't getting paid a huge amount. They were on 30, 40K. We were offering them 60. They were getting counter offered 90. And so we, I just went to the, the, the head of cyber and the, the finance leader and said, look, let's just take them all take all 13 of them give them 100 grand 150 grand a year it doesn't make a difference take them all for a year two years whatever you, you we can afford whatever we can get signed off because it would cost us whatever it was at the time 10 million quid 15 million quid whatever it was but the the market opportunity you can't bid for any UK government cybersecurity work if you didn't have these people in place so the market was the entirety of the UK cybersecurity government market for a year um and the, the head of cyber was up for it, but the finance wouldn't sign off on it. Um, but this sort of work, this disruptive hiring, disruptive practices, is something that, that does go on. You know, our, we used to target um, when we were doing program um, bid work. We'd look at okay, what's the program delivery team in the competitor? Because you'd know who the competitors were broadly for this work. Who, who's the program lead for this? If we wanted to disrupt and take that program lead out, what what would that do for their capabilities? Who else have they got in that team that we could rip out? To, to, to affect that. Um, but the reality is most businesses aren't, aren't comfortable signing up for that sort of stuff. Not because they they necessarily have a bad taste in the mouth to do it. I think most, most companies wouldn't mind that. It, it's the fact that we're now gonna be stuck with headcount with no job for it. And finance just don't want headcount sitting there with no job. And yeah. there's a big piece it this year- throws off
1: all your ratios and stuff
2: like that. Exactly. And, and there was a big piece this year about the fan companies uh, hoarding talent, etc. You know, I, I can't speak for upper echelons of the gods of these fan companies, but I, I've never been in a company where someone's just signed off, here, go, go hire a 1,000 people and just don't do them any work. Like, th- There's never been a hoarding aspect. It's been if you've got specific headcount signed off for specific delivery. And equally, individuals wouldn't want to go and work for a company where there's no work to do. So I, I don't think it's as, as easy as... I, I, I'm a big fan of Dr. John. Uh, sorry, I'm a big fan of his work. And, and these techniques absolutely can happen, but I don't think they necessarily work as, in as clean cut ways as, it, yeah, it would suggest.
0: W- would you wanna work for this company anyway? Like or, or this person, like imagine you walked in, they're like, we're gonna destroy the competition. We're gonna steal our talent. We're gonna do all this sort of stuff. Like war yeah, We're gonna steal their
1: car. We're gonna yeah, slash their like,
0: tires. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it has like inherent uh, ramifications for the culture of the organization. Um, you probably begin to realize that you were hired because just to fuck over some other competitor, this sort of thing. Like, why am I here? Like, or, and that also means you're expendable, right? Yeah. If, if there's no work for you at that point. Uh, I, I, th- I think that the earlier point around like, is this a one-time deal or is this a continuous sort of process? Because like HR recruiting, it's a pretty small world, right? They talk to each other and, these are situations like the prisoner's dilemma, right? If it's a one-time deal, if you want to screw someone over, then by all means, but there's a lot of symbiotic relationships. Getting a whole tit-for-tat
1: type relationship. I do something to you, you do something to me back.
0: Or you're going to wind up like college football, where like you just raise the stakes so much on each other that it's hard to... like All of a sudden, uh, you were going to offer someone 100,000 quid, now, now it's two hundred thousand. That that's the new market value.
2: And don't, don't get me wrong. Like I completely agree, completely agree. Uh, and I think there's there's a couple of bits that really make me a bit nervous. With it also is what one is particularly when you start getting into a recruitment process and you're you're asking some very personal questions. I, I think there's a line in the sand. It's, it's what's appropriate, what's fair, what's 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 true, and. Loading recruitment processes for a, a corporate intelligence perspective, I've never been a fan of. Mm-hmm. I look at that and think, do you know what, that, that's just not unfair on the candidate. It's unfair on the individual that's being asked to do this. It, and it gets a bit too close for corporate espionage for my liking. I'm just not, not a fan of that. Um, but if flip side being, you know, there's been many cases, you know, a lot of the, the big tech companies got huge fines because they were colluding not to hire from each other. So mm-hmm. I, thought, I think, you know, the, the, the thought that, It's aggressively people targeting or ripping out teams. Can you do it for sure? Like, have I seen of entire teams in financial services being lifted and shifted to other financial services organizations? Yeah, I've seen it happen. But I I think, you know, in the same way that TA is a small world, a lot of these VPs, these CEOs, the C-suites, they've all worked with each other. They've been in the same industries for like 15, 20, 30 years. They're on your first name basis. they are not let a lot of this stuff slide for very long.
0: I mean, this is definitely, if you're a psychopath, you'll definitely like this article, so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, but, but the flip side being, I, I am a fan of being, using talent intelligence, labor market intelligence in a much more aggressive way, in a much more commercially Uh, a bigger commercial application i think we are generally in hr we we are quite we we hold our data within and we're not very good at flipping it to what's the commercial impact of this stuff yeah and that's one thing that this this article does really well is to highlight actually what we do here we can massively disrupt commercials for our competitors
1: yeah it's almost like you're using talent intelligence for competitive intelligence or something like that i don't know
2: yeah yeah (laughs) Someone sure should write an article
1: on that. Yeah, we, somebody should. <laughs> um, well, I think I think you had a question for us, Toby, about um, strategic workforce planning and people analytics and talent intelligence and all of those. I don't know, what's, what's going on there?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I'm seeing more broadly where, and in the book, I, I, I kind of hypothesize one of the future situations is all of this stuff needs to come together and i think there's still quite discrete units of people analytics, strategic workforce planning, talent intelligence. Where what do you see the future being? Do you see these functions or and the other talent position analytics or whatever else ones as well? Do you see it all coming together? Do you see it all being one you know, organization people science function or people intelligence function whatever it is or do you think they they are discreetly different and they should have different homes or I'd love to hear your takes.
1: Yeah, i mean my my perspective is i've been I mean, I'm living in the future already, Toby. I've been, uh, I, I've been treating them as complimentary for a while. Um, I I was uh, at a dinner earlier this week where I mentioned, I feel like I'm like a one person, uh, like, you know, trying to be a hero, trying to keep the workforce planning community and the people analytics community connected because they just seem to be ship ship sailing in different directions. But, I've led workforce planning functions. I led people analytics functions while I was leading people analytics. I was doing talent intelligence work. Um, I really think they're extremely complementary, um, And I think most people who don't see them as complementary is just due to ignorance. They're just not familiar with the special superpowers that the other functions give you. And mm. so I, I'm very much in violent agreement that they, these three should coalesce over time. And just cause I find them all interesting in different ways. So, uh, the, and I'll even couple in there, like the IO psychology skill set is a, is an even additional X factor variable that goes into those three as well. Um, what would you say, Scott?
0: Well, I mean, like just hearing you talk there, like, I'm not sure. I'd really draw a distinction between like workforce planning and people analytics. I'm not sure that I, I see a distinction between the two and cause what's your point, they are complementary yeah. Uh, and over time, just things become more consolidated. You you, you start out with these little fiefdoms and they tend to come together. Uh, This seems to be a natural order of things. Of course, you need to follow the business needs.
1: Certain organizations may need them separate. Some may need them together. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen like workforce planning functions that are sitting in like a call center, perhaps, and they have no idea that people analytics even exist because (laughs) all they're doing is really highly operational, highly transactional. We got to hire 30 people this week because we know 30 people are going to (laughs) quit because it happens Mm -hmm. every week. And it's just, um, you know, they they don't really see that kind of overlap, but definitely um, definitely think that they should be. But um, yeah, Toby, having you on as a guest has been a lot of fun. I've been really looking forward to this for a while, and I've admired what you've been doing in the talent intelligence space for even longer than that. So thank you so much for joining us this week. Before I give you the final word, uh, Scott, any parting words for Toby? Oh, this is a final
0: question. Uh, you and your boys going to go to the river today? What, what are you doing?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, so it's, uh, it's now 6 o'clock, so we've done the river. A little late. We're all chilled out. Um, I think it might be a, a dinner and a dog walk, and that's about it for the evening now. A little
0: FIFA? <laughs> play some FIFA? <laughs> uh,
2: wrong shape ball for me. Uh, I'm more
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, you're a rugby guy
2: so it's a, also it's a rugby world on at the moment so i might sneak in some rugby there and uh, just not tell them that it's a replay uh
0: yeah, rugby sneak seven. In some
1: rugby, li- listen to a little slipknot have some fun you know let's do it man <laughs> <laughs> oh this oh, is great
2: might even guilty pleasure some nickelback or something in there as well
1: oh there you go <laughs> oh yeah just rocking out <laughs> oh. i feel like there's a nickelback joke there to be had but anyway, we'll let, we'll wrap this thing up. So, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and today's guest, Toby Coleshaw. Thanks for joining us, Toby.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. As always,
1: all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.